I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. 35 years after his death, the legacy of Ian Curtis still looms large. Now we hear the real story from his Joy Division bandmate, Peter Hook. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Bass player Peter Hook joins us for a candid conversation about the death of his friend and his feud with the remaining members of New Order. And later, we've got new Indietronica from Passion Pit. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, later in the show, we're going to deal with the new album by Passion Pit, whose driving force is Michael Angelakos. He was on the show in 2012 when the group really started to blow up huge, was very nervous, kept saying he didn't even know if he wanted to go through with the interview, finally sat down, played some great music for us. We had a wonderful chat. He said afterwards he very much enjoyed it, but was very frank about his battle with bipolar disorder. Is he in a better place on this new album? We're going to find out later, Jim, but uh, first we've got some music news. That's a little bit of that uh, retro British soul sound so big in the last year or so. Paloma Faith, along with Sam Smith and Ed Sheeran. Greg, they have been helping pop overtake rock as the most popular genre in the United Kingdom. According to new figures released by uh, the label trade body over there, pop accounted for more than a third of all album sales in the UK in 2014, its highest level since 1999. Rock on the outs in Great Britain, at least on the charts, pop ascendant. In the U.S., very different story, Jim, and frankly, I am very surprised by this. I didn't think rock was relevant at all to anybody anymore in terms of consumer consumption, but in the U.S., we still have 29% of the of the market being claimed by rock music in terms of album and uh, tracks purchased and streaming platforms. That's according to Nielsen Music. Pop was half of that, 15%, and R&B and hip-hop was in the middle, about 17%. Album sales, rock music again, dominant. A third of the market buying for rock music in this country. Pop music only 10%. Even in downloads, downloaded music, rock topped pop. Where it really starts to turn is in the future of the music business, the the streaming component. That's where rock starts to fall behind. And R&B and hip-hop have a fairly significant lead, 29% of the market share in the streaming area, topping both rock and pop music. We do have to keep in mind, we don't know if pop is actually more popular in the UK, rock more popular in the US, or if it's just that pop fans are buying more in the UK and, and rock fans still pay cash money in the U.S., right? Because it's really about, we don't know whether people are buying the music or just illegally downloading it. 
You gotta put down the ducky. 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 Yeah, you gotta leave the duck alone. Why are we playing You Have to Put Down the Ducky, Greg? Why are we playing that, Jim? Uh, because I love that song. <laughs> Who doesn't, right? But also, recently, the National Recording Registry added a new batch, 25 sound recordings, to the greatest recordings of all time, which are on file at the Library of Congress. This is meant to, for future generations, future centuries, say what the most important recordings from different eras were. In addition to Sesame Street, all-time platinum favorites, the 1995 album. I know you have both the vinyl and the CD. <laughs> There's some great recordings on here. 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. Who would disagree with that, right? Yeah. Joan Baez's self-titled debut, Stand By Me by Benny King, You've Lost That Love and Feeling by The Righteous Brothers, The Doors' first album, eh, Stand by Sly and the Family Stone, A Wild and Crazy Guy, Steve Martin's 1978 mm. comedy album, and then some pretty hipster favorites, OK Computer, Radiohead, right, mm. 1997, and uh, Miseducation of Lauren Hill, 1998, the album that really put her on the map and really kind of the last good thing she's done. listening to Sound Opinions, and that's Transmission, the great 1979 single by Joy Division. And 35 years after the suicide of its lead singer, Ian Curtis, and its transformation into New Order, that Manchester band continues to grow in legend. Now, I remember vividly the day that uh, Curtis died. It was May 8th, 1980, and that hit me just as hard as John Lennon's death later in the year, Jim. That magnetism and genius that he had, you know, it was a symbol to a lot of young punks back then and continues to be to this day. His tombstone even is inscribed with that famous lyric that he wrote, Love Will Tear Us Apart. But he's also been reduced to a caricature and a myth, much like Kurt Cobain in a lot of ways. His bandmate, uh, Joy Division and New Order bassist Peter Hook, has always hoped to reveal a clearer picture of the band and his friend, especially with that very dead honest 2013 book, Unknown Pleasures, Inside Joy Division. Now, you know, it's true that Ian suffered from epilepsy and he struggled with depression, failed marriage, but uh, Peter really doesn't remember a, a tragic figure the way he's sort of been cast ever since. Instead, he remembers this uh, beer-drinking prankster who was pretty upbeat about making music with him, guitarist Bernard Sumner, and drummer Stephen Morris. Greg, the music they made still resonates today, even though there were only two albums before Ian's death, Unknown Pleasures in 79 and Closer in 1980. Peter and his band The Light are touring parts of the U.S. this spring, performing those albums in cities that never had the chance to welcome Ian Curtis and the original band Joy Division. New Order formed shortly after Ian's death with a number of successful singles and albums. Then they called it quits in 2007, only to reunite a few years later without Peter Hook. When he visited the studio in 2013, after the release of his book, he talked to us about that bitter breakup. But first, we wanted to know why, after so many books and films about the legend of Joy Division, he felt he needed to speak up with his own take. 
what happened was simply that I read one book too many <laughs> about Joy Division, which was Mick Middles and Lindsay Reed, who was Tony Wilson's first wife uh, book. Uh, and I just thought it was time to put the record straight, really. I mean, they, they only talk about Joy Division in one way, mm. which is the, uh, the <laughs> darkness, the you know, terrible self-fulfilling prophecy that was Ian Curtis's death. I mean, I'm not a, a fool. You know, I realise that that sells records and makes reputations. But I've never been convinced that it was the only side of the story. So the thing was, is, is that when I thought about the wonderful things we went through, to get where we ended up as Joy Division. It needed celebrating, really, the human side. And also it's about inspiration. You know, I don't find that those tales of Joy Division uh, are very inspiring, only to a limited number of people who ha maybe have a, you know, a complete death wish. Mm. Um, and to me, punk was all about inspiration. It was about you know, finding the freedom in your life to do something you wanted to do that you hadn't considered before. I'm going to have to say that the, the book does demystify that aspect of Joy Division, not too much, I hope. Mm -hmm. We were very, very serious about what we were doing while we were doing it. It's just that as soon as we went off duty, shall we say, <laughs> we turned into yeah. these um, raving, japing lunatics of which Ian was very much a part. You know, I suppose it was a funny way. It was a way of letting off steam from the very serious side the, the, of, of the group. Mm -hmm. So you weren't worried at all, Peter, about making the story smaller than it actually was. But my rock critic hero, Lester Bangs, famously wrote, in rock and roll, there are no facts, only myths. <laughs> and you wanted to talk about the facts, which included yes. the fact that we yeah. had a lot of fun. We were working class yeah. yabos, as you write, yes. who had some laughs. Yeah. The interesting thing, though, is that I had this argument with Tony Wilson when uh, 24 Hour Party People came out. And he wrote his book about 24-hour party people, and he actually changed some of the facts, shall we say, yeah. to fit in with the legend. And I now said, people knew it through the movie. Yeah, and I said to Tony, I said, why, why did you do that? You know? hmm. And he said, Peter, he said, you must realise that fiction is far more interesting than fact. <laughs> and I said, Tony, in this occasion you're wrong, because the, fic the fiction did not compare to the fact. The smaller the attendance, the bigger the history. There were 12 people at the Last Supper, half a dozen at Kitty Hawk, Archimedes was on his own in the bath. Well, and there is this, this fatalistic myth in rock and roll that in order to make great art, you have to be miserable and suffer. <laughs> mm. I'm not actually true. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not actually convinced about that because the interesting thing is is that Tony Wilson did always say to me that I did have one thing to thank the taxman for in England. The fact that he kept us miserable uh, <laughs> meant that we could carry on making great music for so long, which was actually true. I think the thing is, is that once a musician becomes, um, shall we say, comfortable, and his surroundings become comfortable, I think his music starts to sound comfortable mm. as well. I would have to agree with that one. But yeah, the but thing it doesn't is, mean you have to be suicidal in order no, to create No, not at all. Art. I mean, the, the way we made our music was a struggle. The fact that you were self-financed right the way through. Joy Division nor New Order ever had any record company help in anything that they did. And it was a hell of a struggle, but it did keep you grounded and it also kept you out of debt, which was a wonderful place for, for you to be in. I think the thing is, is that Joy Division made great music because they had to make great music. We weren't comfortable. Everything was a struggle. And I think the thing that I try and show in the book is how difficult it can be. But ultimately, you can change the world. This is the way step inside. 
and you address one of these myths surrounding the band, or one of the myths certainly surrounding the Manchester scene. You and Bernard Sumner, your boyhood friend, and uh, Morrissey, Marky Smith, Pete Shelley are all at this gig seeing the Sex Pistols play in 1976. None of you really knew each other at that point. No, we didn't know. And the impact of that show, though, it seemed like that sort of set the direction of Joy Division. Yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> it's an interesting point. And uh, one thing that, you know, me coming to America and talking about this has made me realize that it does make me wonder what would have happened if I hadn't have gone to that show. Because I walked into it as a nine to five civil servant and then walked out of it a fully fledged punk rocker <laughs> without an instrument, but with a desire, a burning desire to be in a group. Mm-hmm. And it actually seems completely ridiculous now. And the fact that Bernard and I were there, Pete Shelley, Mark E. Smith, and all of you in your own little way went on to create and achieve what you did is even more surprising Mm -hmm. for that occasion because basically Johnny Rotten just screamed at us, it seemed, for half an hour to get off our arses, <laughs> F off, you know, and we were like, oh my God, I'd never seen, I mean, and I'd been to see Led Zeppelin a couple of weeks before and Deep Purple, and I never got anything from them like I got from Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols. I never looked at John Paul Jones and thought, like, I could do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> thing is is that i think you have to bear in mind that for ian who felt exactly the same way the ultimate frustration for him was his illness because just when we were getting to the point when we were going to achieve something it was him that ultimately was going to you know stop it or looked as if he could stop it and i think that that was his you know the shame of that and the frustration of that only added to his awful plight Mm-hmm. You're talking about the epileptic seizures. Yeah, I mean, it, it was funny. When I came to do the book, I'd sort of convinced myself that Ian got ill towards the uh, end of Joy Division. But he didn't. He actually got ill very much at the start. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was me sort of, you know, making myself feel a little better <laughs> about what had happened by changing that fact. And his, his illness did become progressively worse. But I think that the, the worse it got, the more he wanted to fight it and the less he wanted to um, give in. Was Ian's power, his charisma, evident from that first meeting? I love the way you write about it. It's a black leather jacket that he <laughs> detoured with uh, spray-painted orange fluorescent paint says hate. Yeah. Right? What yeah. did you think? You see this guy with this hate jacket. Well, look, amazingly, I saw the front of him before I saw the back of him. Uh, and if somebody had said to me, 
what do you think that that young man's got written on his back? I would have thought it was a picture of kittens <laughs> or pink fluffy clouds. Uh, certainly not hate in um, fluorescent orange paint because he was not like that. I mean, mm. he was a demon when he was on stage and the intensity of the group got him. But in, his, in himself, you know, off stage, his off stage persona, he was as gentle and as nice uh, and as generous as any human being could possibly be. So that was a bit of a shock for me, well, actually, when I saw him. Were there things that he was hating in culture at the time, or was it just yeah. you're going to see the Sex I mean, Pistols, you got to wear a hate jacket? We bought into this fight the world, you know, get rid of the old farts, let's get rid of these old clutter bugs that are at the top of music. <laughs> I mean, you know what, I'm really glad now at the ripe old age of 56 they didn't, because if there was a, a, a compulsory retirement age for musicians <laughs> yeah, like was. we were trying to bring in, uh, I'd be out of a bloody job. So <laughs> that, that, that is something that I'm glad we didn't get our own way. You know, I must admit that in music today, Day, there, there's a hell of a lot of respect shown to older people. Mm-hmm. You know, when I go to a club to DJ, I probably get congratulated by the same kids that are smashing past you on the subway. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they, yeah. They, they show you no respect on the street, but my God, you get up there and play or do, you know, a DJ set and they're full of respect for you. You know, they're, they're, there's no ageism in music in England. But even, even in the punk movement, there was clearly a reverence for certain roots and certain parts of history. To me, when I first heard Joy Division, there was so much Velvet Underground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, so so it, wasn't, it wasn't out with all the old bands. <laughs> it was, you know, let's remember the bands that mattered. That, you know, it was out with Fleetwood Mac. We, we, wouldn't, ad, with, we wouldn't admit it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we wouldn't admit it. I mean, it's, it's, it is interesting to think because, I mean, I th- that was one of the thoughts that strikes me about America was that if Joy Division would have made it here because Ian was very, very in awe of all those bands, mm-hmm. The Doors, Velvet Underground, Iggy Pop, all of them, you know, it does make you wonder that if we could have got him here. We're going to continue talking with Peter Hook about Ian Curtis, Joy Division, and Rifts in New Order after a break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Jim and I review the new album from pop artist Passion Pit.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Greg Cott, and you've been listening to our interview with Peter Hook, the influential bass player in the Manchester band's Joy Division and New Order. That's him in a rare moment singing lead on the New Order track Dreams Never End. In Hookie's book, Unknown Pleasures, he offers a first-hand look at Joy Division's brief career, from watching the Sex Pistols in 1976 with schoolmate Bernard Sumner and a who's who of Manchester's music scene, to the recording of Unknown Pleasures in 1979 and closer in 1980 to lead singer Ian Curtis's suicide just before the band's first U.S. tour 35 years ago in May of 1980. Of course, Ian's death would have an impact on the band's career. The remaining three members reformed into New Order, but Peter also writes about the emotional impact. He says that when someone deals with a loved one's suicide, the question is usually, what could we have done? But for him, the question was, what did we actually do? As we pick up our 2013 conversation, I wanted to know what he meant by that. Well, I suppose in a a way, you have to take it on the chin for the fact that you knew what he was doing, you knew he was getting worse, but you actually did carry on. And the thing is, is that Ian was such a generous guy and he did recognise your work, your enthusiasm, your longing to just play music because it wasn't about money or success. It was just the freedom to play the music that you were writing. And the, the music you were writing was getting so mature for your years. You really did, and I'm sure Ian did because it was always Ian that used to bring us the music to school us. It was, I remember one wonderful moment when someone compared us to The Doors uh, and both Bernard and I went, who are The Doors? <laughs> uh, and Ian went, I did have that thought, I'll lend you the LP and he lent mm. us the LP and blow me down. Mm. We did sound like The Doors and we even went to the lengths of playing Riders on the Storm uh, a couple of times and nobody noticed. <laughs> yeah. So we must have sounded like The Doors. Um, but no, I mean, I think it was that awful thing that we kept asking him, are you all right? And in our hearts and in our minds we knew he wasn't you know he didn't play it up he wasn't a drama queen and, and it, that, that was the thing that amazed you even on a, a record like Closer when we came to do Closer and everyone says oh look at the lyrics of Closer how could you not know now if he'd have been laying in the corner of the studio crying you might have gleamed that he wasn't happy the thing was he wasn't like that he was marching around the room as happy as we were as as driven as we were he had a fantastic relationship with Martin Hannett on that record so there was nothing to show you apart from his illness you know the occasional fit that um, he, he he wasn't really enjoying it and that that's the the juxtaposition of the lyrics compared to the person thought one of the most revealing facts of all which they left out of the Joy Division documentary was that they took his prescription for his illness in 1978 to a modern day epilepsy specialist the opinion was quite simple it just said that this was guaranteed to kill him oh my god and because of the uppers and downers involved in what he was taking the the guy just said he had no chance here 
Mm. Mm. Was, I mean, but that's because the treatment was so barbaric. And I suppose that that's one of the things you have to, you know, thank God for the internet. In the, even if we'd have had the internet, maybe we'd have been able to go and sit down and go, what is epilepsy? Because we were a little bit too young um, and too maybe embarrassed to, to find out exactly what it is. And it must have been awful for Ian. I mean, he wrote She's Lost Control about an epilepsy sufferer mm-hmm. who'd had a fit and died. So that must have been... Oh, my God, I couldn't imagine how frightened you, you must have felt to be suffering from the same thing and watching that. And she turned around and took me by the hand and said, I've lost control again. And how I'll never know just why I understand, she said, I've lost control again. And she screamed out, kicking on the side and said, I've lost control again. And she's upon the floor, I thought she died, she said, I've lost You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're talking with Peter Hook about Unknown Pleasures, his book about his brief stay in Joy Division, a very brief band, but what a band, amazing band. You talk about the sound. You're untrained. I mean, you said when you walked out of that Sex Pistols gig, we're going to form this band, but I don't really know how to play an instrument yet. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't have an instrument. Yeah. And Bernard was the same yeah. same bag. It wasn't real, like you were tutored musicians no. or anything. It was and very yet, late to start, actually, 20 when I found out. When I found out Johnny Marr was playing guitar at seven, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, wow, you know, I mean, but you know, in, in a funny way, I actually had 21 years of quite enjoying myself, to be honest with you. And working for the man, as you did, did mean that you got nights off and weekends off. As soon as you become a musician it's a 24-hour obsessive occupation that that sparse sound though that you came up with was was totally unique at the time and has certainly had staying power your bass style has been imitated by countless people here you are this untutored guy (laughs) and you're playing high up the neck and uh you know it's uh Uh, encouraged very much by ian actually Mm -hmm. it was ian that recognized that that sounded different and that it worked in a different way with the group uh, and literally used to go to great lengths to get me to do it, almost as much the lengths that Bernard used to go to at the end of New Order to not get me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it just shows you how your life turns full circle uh-huh. there, doesn't yeah. it? That uh, latest New Order album is missing something. Uh, what could it be? It's <laughs> most definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, it's, it's interesting how tastes and relationships, but, you know, like any relationship that you have in life, once the sex has gone, it's over, isn't it? <laughs> you know? We won't go there with you and Bernard, but uh, <laughs> but the music was sounded like Ian played a great role as an editor, and, yeah, and Martin was, Hannett as he well. He was the and, conductor. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what did strike me in 2010 when I came to play the music to celebrate Ian's 30th anniversary of his life, as I, as I like to call it, was that most people had heard Joy Division on record mm-hmm. and not live. And on live, we were very, very different. Bernard, if he played synthesizer, he wouldn't play guitar. If you play guitar, you couldn't play keyboards. But yeah, I mean, the the sound, we never talked about it. We were just able to do it. Each musician had a completely individual style. Steve's drumming in Joy Division was very, very riffy, almost like a drum melody. Mine was the same, and Bernard had this wonderful melodic lead style that most of the time that he used to use, and it was Ian that had just put it together. I mean, it, it really was simple. You know, play a high riff, okay? 
do them jungle drums, Steve. Bernard, <laughs> put some lead guitar on it. Buff. Unknown Pleasure is the first album. You address that in detail in the book, and you do talk about the fact that at the time you and Bernard were, were a little bit upset with yeah. mm-hmm. this should have been a little bit rougher, a little punkier. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. We wanted it to sound like Sex Pistols. We really did all the clash. And Martin gave us this wonderfully mature sound that you, you didn't recognize. We recognised that, you know, with Martin's drug addiction, the guy was an absolute genius, man. But he, he ruled through chaos. His idea was never to tell you what to do, just to hint or allude to it <laughs> in the hope mm. that you did something more than he wanted you to do. And his record was that you could put any band in with him, and no matter how long they'd been getting on, be it 40 minutes or 40 years, Martin would have them at each other's throats in a couple of hours. And he was very, very good at that. You know, he really did rule by chaos. Mm-hmm. And he did get the results. You know, I mean, for, for what he did with Joy Division was, he'd get Joy Division to record and then get them to record it again separately. So he had the maximum separation between each instrument. The way it's something that you take really for granted now with computers. The fact that he did Unknown Pleasures in six days... You know, from start to finish, closer in two weeks, mm-hmm. which I must admit at the time felt like a lifetime. The rhythm was such a big part of it because, yeah. you know, in that transition from Joy Division to New Order, we begin to get the embrace of many other different rhythms, not just that rock and roll boom, boom, cha, boom, boom, cha. Yeah. And it's like, oh my goodness, like, what, what is Steve doing there? Writing 16th notes on the hi hat? That's yeah. almost disco. Steve was an absolutely fantastic, fantastic drummer, and I suppose that that was one of the reasons why I got so disenchanted with the. Uh, the band and their management when we came to do the soundtrack for Control was that for them to turn around and say, oh, we'll do it without the drums, I just thought was the ultimate insult mm. to my bandmate, never mind me. It really was the, nearly the final nail in, in New Order's coffin was, was that attitude of that you want, you'd want to leave out somebody as important as Steve. I just thought, no, mm. this is horrible. I'm, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> But you're right about the, the songwriting. I mean, there was so much stuff and the great singles that didn't end up on the albums. You know, I'm thinking about something like Transmission, which would have been a centerpiece track Digital. for every other band. Digital you know? was a great single. Mm-hmm. Disorder was a great single. We believed and we were sticking to the punk rule book. Mm-hmm. What was the point of putting your single on an LP when your audience had paid for it once? It just seemed disrespectful to get someone to pay for it twice. Why would you do that? It doesn't make sense. And Tony Wilson actually went, yeah, that's right, I agree. Yeah. 
that only changed when, funnily enough, with Power, Corruption and Lies on Quest, Quincy Jones's label in America, because people were buying the album, taking it home, realising it didn't have Blue Monday on, and coming back and giving it back. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's your lot that yeah. caused all the trouble. And the songs, the singles, didn't fit with the mood, the the coherence, the sequencing of unknown pleasures and closer. These were these were units. Uh, yeah, I mean, we songs. we never we would write and so well, that's a single. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, to actually do what we did with Dead Souls and Atmosphere, which was put it out in a limited edition French art <laughs> label, and the they only pressed fifteen hundred and seventy six copies because that was the last time the French beat the English in a war. <laughs> Uh, and we were like, well, all right then, give the French the moment, you know, we'll let them have two of the best tracks we've ever written. There was no thought because we knew that we could write more. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis, and we're here with Peter Hook. Peter, the music was fabulous, but also the mystique around the group. I remember buying the imports in America. You know, me and my teenage friends were looking, who are these guys? There's no pictures of them. The the artwork is kind of mysterious and dark and beautiful, and we didn't really know. You know, there wasn't a lot of press about you in the U.S., but... That seemed to be part of it, too. It sort of built up interest in the group because you weren't ever overexposed. No, we made a conscious decision, actually, quite early on that we didn't want to appear on the sleeves because we felt that that was, again, that the, the art of celebrity and pushing yourself on the record sleeve, we felt didn't actually sit very well with the punk ethic. Mm. And I think that this brings us back to the point is that I didn't want to use the book to demystify too much about Joy Division because there was a lot of it that was conscious. Ian in particular hated it when anybody singled him out. If it became Ian Curtis and Joy Division, that, that used to absolutely disgust him. Mm. And it was through a few, couple of unfortunate interviews that we had where they tried to play him up, and he just said, well, I'm not doing it. You know, I'm not having that. The band are just as important as I am, and, and I'm not divorcing the two. Well, it's, it's clear that the band was on the ascent, and I think people look back now, Level Terrace Apart, uh, kind of the posthumous release from the band, and, and ironically the most popular song in America that you guys yeah. released. And Ian was already dead, and the band was already dead at that point. People look upon that single in a number of ways. You talked about the lyrics a little bit, but also the sound. You know, we hear this transition going on. And maybe is that just looking back in hindsight and saying, oh, we can hear the kernel of New Order here? Or was that just, you know, the dance element? I think, I think you can see a maturity to the songwriting that's even more pronounced than the one from the punk demos mm-hmm. to Unknown Pleasures. I don't know how to term it, really. You know, you two guys are the experts. You'd have to say it was, it was like a, a poppy, mature 
songwriting where you were sort of gaining a sound that was acceptable to more people maybe than the Joy Division sound. And I mean, it's a very interesting single though. I mean, if you look at Ceremony and In a Lonely Place, you know, I played them recently. In a Lonely Place sounds very, very much like Joy Division. Ceremony sounds like New Order. And I do think that Bernard's interest in electronics and Steve's interest in electronics and drum machines, etc., would have led us, as Joy Division, to Blue Monday anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't think the music would have changed. Ian wouldn't have been going, no, 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 don't do that, because those elements that Martin Hannett brought in, you know, the harp sequences and the sampling, first time we did it on Closer, the way that he mar- married the uh, electronic instruments with the acoustic instruments, it was, you know, we, we, we were definitely on our way. I don't think we would have changed that much. Now, New Order would have commercial success finally. And oh, yeah. Huge, become a really popular band success. worldwide. Can't be said of Joy Division. Journalists would write, You might not have heard of this group, but Joy Division is an important band. Did that contribute to its eventual success? Yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the great things about doing the signings is how many people have said to me that they got into Joy Division after New Order. Mm. So as long as you're proud of your heritage and you, you do include it, as we did. I mean, it was, it was interesting, really. I mean, the thing about New Order was, was that they, they, they didn't go through a grieving process for Joy Division. We literally went in the Monday after and became New Order and were completely focused on that to the detriment of Joy Division. We literally packed Joy Division in a bag and put its ashes into a cupboard. And left it there for so long. And didn't play those songs, I no. think, ever live, right? Mm, uh, uh, as no, New no. Order. Yeah, we, we, we did, as I said in the book, isolation, transmission, atmosphere occasionally, and Love Will Tears Apart. So the vast majority of your, of your catalogue, you just completely ignored. Mm. I mean, that was one of the wonderful things. Before New Order split in 2006, it was okay to do that. And it felt okay right the way through. I must admit, what, once the band had split and you were outside, I particularly wondered why we'd never done anything to celebrate, anything to do with Joy Division. I just didn't understand it. Mm. Why, why did I do that? You know, Rob Gretton in particular was, was adamant that when Joy Division finished, we would not be seeing the back of it and that we would be as big in 10 years as we were now. Was that and hard to believe at the time? It, I, I didn't care, to be mm. honest, mm. I, because we were struggling trying mm. to you know, reinvent ourselves and cope with the death of uh, somebody very, very important to you. But he was right. Joy Division is still quoted as an amazing inspiration to so many young groups. Uh, and it's fantastic. I really do take it as a great compliment to the three songwriters and Ian. I'd love to address what you talked about with the, with the legacy of the group, though, because you've got this generation, 20-year-old kids coming out there picking something up here. There is that myth that you address about, you know, the, the, the rock martyr and the romanticism around that and maybe even some of the goth trappings which have been glommed onto that, which struck me as ridiculous from the start. But what is it that 
you know, a 20-year-old kid today is picking up that, that is resonating? Do you have any sense of that? It, it has to be the music. I mean, I must admit, when I started playing the music uh, in 2010, I thought that the audience would be full of fat old blokes like me. When I started playing it, the it was very, very mixed audiences. And some of the places we've been, you know, particularly like Mexico and Brazil, the audiences are really young. And I'm like, mm. wow, it, it is surprising. But they all say the same thing. I love your music. And you're like, oh, fantastic. What, what more mm. as a musician could you ask for? And I don't think looking at them, that all of them, I mean, they are the occasional goth thing with the picture of Ian yeah. on, on, on their arm and, <laughs> yeah. oh, God, I died for you and, you know, all, all this. <laughs> oh, and you're boy. like going, well, well, fine, fine. You know, people are different and that's what makes the world interesting. But ultimately it has to come down to the music. And to get the music back and to get the celebration back into my life for what Ian did is, has been wonderful. And to play those songs again has been amazing. And whilst this past year has been one of the most difficult of my musical life because of what um, the others did in so-called New Order reunion, um, to play the music again was fantastic. And I got that back and I was like, yes! <laughs> you know, I watched that turkey play Age of Consent and now I'm playing it how it should be played. You threw down the gauntlet earlier, Peter, about asking the question that that, that, that needs to be asked, all right? Some animosity with the so-called New Order mm, boys yeah. now, right? But you know deep down, there's got to be a part of you that knows deep down that if you and those guys got back together and played this Joy Division music, it would be different. And I would argue as a fan, it would probably be better. It would oh, certainly God, be more yeah. meaningful to me. Right. Definitely. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. don't, you're not so angry. In the same way that they're doing it. Right. Say the same thing that yeah, them, right? Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, there would be something getting mm-hmm. back together with those fellows would add to this, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, we don't I, hate I, them that I, much. I'm, well, I'm, God, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing because it, it becomes a business thing and it, and this is is like a divorce at the moment yeah you know this yeah. is a really bad divorce yeah. and generally in divorces you don't let your your missus sort out your alimony my beef with them is is that i i feel that they shouldn't be sorting out what i should be getting i mean i felt that new order was was done you know i felt that we were not on the same page as as you americans so so nicely put it <laughs> we didn't have the same ideals we certainly didn't have the same ambitions and we changed so much over the years and whether you like it or not unfortunately for the last 20 years of new order it had been mainly me and bernard mm-hmm. definitely not jillian and steve was really taking a back role and it was it was too the writing was on the wall and i just thought no i'm not having this uh, I think the you know the economic and the austerity measures that are affecting us all in this world have probably more to do with New Order getting back together again than anything else. And the thing is, is that they won't admit that. Mm. And I'm realistic enough to admit that. And it's it's just a very very sad situation to be in. You know, to considering from going from one of the best rhythm sections in the world mm. and being one of the best groups in the world, and then you hate each other's stinking guts. <laughs> it's really interesting, yeah. 
yeah, too common yeah, story yeah, in rock and roll. But I, I was I'm encouraged to hear you say that yes, there is something pl- about playing the music with Bernard. Oh my uh, God! You no, know, I, because I, you can't get Waters to say. I'm not the same without Gilmore. No. And Gilmore will not grant that I'm not the same without Waters, but it's so freaking obvious. Mm. I would play with Bernard and Steve any time because they are fantastic musicians. Peter Hook, it's been a pleasure having you on Sound Opinions. Thank you. Now over to you, our listeners. We know we've got a lot of Joy Division and New Order fans in the audience. We hear from you all the time. Tell us what you think about Ian Curtis's legacy. Why are these bands still so important today? Call 888-859-1800 and visit the footnotes at soundopinions.org for links to other Joy Division episodes and our review of the most recent New Order album without the founding bass player, Peter Hook. Coming up, Michael Angelakos is back as Passion Pissed. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a song called Lifted Up 1985 from the new Passion Pit record, Kindred, the third studio album from Passion Pit. A group that really started, it's a one-man project. Michael Angelakos started making songs on his laptop at Emerson College in Massachusetts around 2007. The story goes that he, he wrote this first group of songs, which became Passion Pit's Chunk of Change EP, as sort of a tribute, a gift, to a then-girlfriend in college. Formed a group around those songs and ended up putting out a record in 2009 called Manners. The reason for that was that Sleepyhead, one of those songs on that original EP, became a huge MySpace hit. Remember MySpace? It was a huge (laughs) hit back then. And uh, Sleepyhead was one of those tracks that made Angelakos a star, and he ended up getting signed to a label deal. Sleepyhead was reissued in 2009 as part of Manners, 
and again became an even bigger commercial hit. That led to the follow-up album, Gossiper, around the time when we had him in the studio uh, here at Sound Opinions a few years ago. Gossamer ended up debuting at number four on the Billboard 200 chart in 2012, and uh, Angelakos and Passion Pit were a huge hit at uh, big festivals like Lollapalooza that same summer. Now we have a uh, several-year wait. Uh, We have the record Kindred. He has been particularly transparent about his bipolar disorder in interviews, including the one that he gave us a few years ago. And this record is part of that ongoing story of how he's dealing with this disorder. Here's a track from Kindred. It's called Where the Sky Hangs from Passion Pit on Sound Opinions. It goes up, it goes down, it goes from the new Passion Pit album, Kindred, on Sound Opinions. Greg, I love that tune. I love the whole album. I think uh, what's amazing to me about Angelakos' career is that uh, whatever pain he is suffering in his personal life, he finds catharsis in making this irresistible dance-pop music. Some of it is incredibly upbeat. That track, Lifted Up 1985, is just wonderful, man. Boy, does that make me happy. Other parts of this album are a little quieter, a little more introspective. But overall, he is not moping ever. He's celebrating life, I think, which is sweeter to him because he often has difficulty finding happiness. I I just think that in terms of electronic dance music that also has real soul in the way that the very best disco in the 70s or house music from Chicago in the 80s had real soul, I think uh, it doesn't get any better than this record. It's a buy it for me. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Angelakos as a songwriter. I think his ability to combine what's happening on commercial radio, make a sound that a, you know, a commercial station or a commercial pop radio listener could like and yet inject, as you said, some soul into it and some substance beyond a lot of the clichés that you see out there in what is quote-unquote pop music 
really puts him ahead of the pack. He is a uh, brilliant arranger of keyboards, building these symphonic almost arrangements that are giddy, exuberant, but also at the same time very elegant and beautiful. The more ballady tracks on this album really stand out for me. Looks Like Rain, Where the Sky Hangs, that track we just played. These are beautiful, elegant, stripped-back ballads that kind of showcase his abilities in a more quiet mode, and I really love those moments on this record. I, I think Craig also a great vocalist. You know, it's that falsetto is hard to, to pull off real emotion with that kind of a very thin voice, but he does. Yeah, it can sound fake or it, it can be overused at times to the point where it can become annoying, but I think on this record he really finds that fine balance. I think one of the strengths of the record, it is... 10 very finely honed songs, 38 minutes. It's a great pop record beginning to end. And then, at the, you know, at the base of it, you know, here's this guy, as you said, dealing with these everyday problems that he has, living with this disorder, and at the same time fighting through it. This is a much more optimistic record, I think, in yeah. some ways than Gossamer was, which was really a, a depressing album if you scrape past those great melodies on it. This Beautiful, one, but l- sad. Yeah, this yeah. one's a little bit more optimistic, and, it, and it's a good sign that things are are looking up. Passion Pit's Kindred is a buy it album for me as well. So that's a double buy it for Kindred by Passion Pit. We have some thanks to say on the way out. Mary Gaffney recorded our session with Peter Hook. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Evan Chung, and our intern is Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Yes, hello, this is Steve from Omaha, Nebraska. And you mentioned something about what instrument I would like to have or do have by any other famous artist. What I am lucky to have, I was at a Rolling Stones concert, and I managed to catch Charlie Watson's drum like as if I was making eye contact with Charlie. I, I, I was sitting right behind the stage, and it was so exciting. And at the end of the concert, he stood up, turned around, he threw his drumsticks out, and I was lucky enough to catch one. Thank you very much. Keep listening to your program. It's Adam from Chicago here. Let's talk this new Slater Kinney album. This is amazing. Uh, first of all, it's great to have them back. Second, if I knew every band could take a break for a decade and you know participate in their own creative endeavors and return as the reigning rock band in America, well, I think I would be encouraging more of my favorite bands to try this, even despite the weight that it took to hear this album. 
you know, cities to love was more than worth the wait. Uh, the sense of urgency is still present in the songs, from, you know, the pulsing groove of Bury Our Friends to the sing-song guitar chorus of Hey Darling. Not a dud in the bunch. It's nice to see this underrecognized band finally get the attention they deserve, and it's great to hear people talking about them again. In the past two decades, I feel like they haven't gotten as much attention about other bands, you know, that were definitely not as good as them, and it's great just to see them come back stronger than ever, ready to prove themselves. It might be too soon to say this, but I think it's already the best album of 2015. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. This is Josh in Oakland. I uh, just heard the review of the Black Lips album, and you guys were talking about bands that were influenced by the Beatles and then were kind of doing a garage rock thing where they were trying to sound like the Beatles but came up with their own sound. And it kind of made me think of bands like Big Star, which are you know a great example of that. And then I just discovered the other day uh, Jay and the Americans to be a little bit like that as well, kind of a mix of you know, Roy Orbison meets the Beatles meets Richie Valens' uh, La Bamba. When I heard her say, It made me think that a really fun topic for a show would be uh, some of those really obscure bands and songs that kind of come from bands that were trying to sound like the Beatles but didn't quite hit the mark but ended up hitting their own mark. Thanks very much. From these streets, very close to the cavern Rutland, came the fabulous Rutland sound, created by the prefab four Dirk, Nasty, Stig and Barry, who created a musical legend that will last a lunchtime. Their first album was made in 20 minutes. The second took even longer. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.